For the past two weeks, Pastor Emily has preached from Genesis about our fall from goodness and our loss of closeness with God. I'll continue today that theme of loss caused by sin, focusing on our loss of brotherly and sisterly love for other people. In today's text, we see an escalation of sin and the wanton taking of human life, first by Cain and later by Lamech. Let's hear today's text from Genesis chapter 4, as Gary McLeod reads for us. The scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and verses 23 and 24. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the first things of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The word of the Lord. At the beginning of our story, we learn that Cain is a farmer who offers God some of his produce, while Abel, his brother, a herdsman, offers the fat portions from the firstlings of his flock. The writer tells us the Lord had regard for, the, for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. Why that was so, we are not told explicitly. Though I think it's obvious that while Cain offered God his best, the first things of his flock, Cain offered just his leftovers, not his first fruits, but his surplus. Now, what occurs as a result? 
Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Observing both Cain's anger and feelings of discouragement, God asks why and promises, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God reminds Cain that he is a free moral agent. He has the freedom to choose to do well on the one hand or yield to sin on the other. God describes sin here as a wild beast ready to attack its victim, each one of us. This reminds me of the Apostle Peter's comparison of the devil to, quote, a roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour. So sin is a power which seeks to control us, a condition, a spiritual virus, if you will, with which we have all been infected. And God tells Cain that he is not to give in to this lurking beast, but instead to master it, i.e. to resist it. Once out in the field alone with his brother Abel in a fit of anger, likely caused by deep resentment, Cain rises up and murders Abel in cold blood. Later, when God inquires, where is your brother Abel? Cain replies first with a blatant lie, I do not know. Then with a dismissive, passive-aggressive question, am I my brother's keeper? That is, his brother's guardian or protector. While Psalm 121 proclaims God is our keeper, and the ironic blessing asks God to bless and keep us, this text is suggesting that we are all called by God to guard, to protect, to cherish the lives of other people. Responding to Cain's murderous act, God says, Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The Hebrew word used here for crying frequently describes the cry of the oppressed, pleas that God takes seriously. Blood guilt cries out for justice, and God hears such cries. God will not overlook Cain's violent act because God alone intends to be the single giver and taker of human life. Cain has violated the God-endowed sanctity of human life, taking the life of one made in God's own image and likeness, who belongs to God. So God must now enact justice. God first decrees that Cain is cursed from the very ground, and further, God's verdict is that Cain will become a fugitive, a wanderer, without a permanent home. Instead of being penitent, though, and admitting his guilt, and that God's sentence is both merciful and grace-filled, Cain complains that his punishment is greater than he can bear. He also expresses self-pity and the fear that anyone who meets him may kill him. God then responds in a very surprising way. Instead of acting as the avenger of blood by killing the murderer, in this case Cain, God acts to protect Cain. He, he provides this shield of protection. In a word of sheer grace, God reassures Cain and in an effort to prevent further violence, issues a warning to anyone who might want to kill him. God warns, whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. That is God's expression of gracious concern for Cain. It's a word of divine deterrence of further acts of murder. God puts a mark on Cain, not to brand him as an evildoer, as a murderer, 
but to provide him with a badge of safe conduct as one whose welfare concerns the Almighty. So in passing sentence, God is both Cain's judge as well as his protector and keeper. God acts to protect and keep Cain in spite of the fact that Cain was unrepentant and refused earlier to protect and keep his own brother. Now later in verses 23 and 24 of the same chapter, God's words of warning against taking human life do not have their desired effect when Cain's great-great-great-grandson Lamech arrogantly boasts, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged seventyfold, truly Lamech, seventy-sevenfold. Lamech overreacts by killing in response to a mere wound. He warns that he will take unlimited vengeance against his enemies, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Jesus may well have had Lamech's boast in mind when he spoke about being willing to forgive others seventy-seven times in the passage we heard earlier in our assurance of forgiveness from Matthew chapter 18. In the words of Old Testament scholar Victor P. Hamilton, Lamech is filled with vindictiveness and hatred, a proud man who backs away from nobody and does not hesitate to kill anybody. As you can see, this is a, a sad chapter. Adam and Eve's earlier rebellion against God's command now metastasizes. It leads to the loss of brotherly and sisterly love and respect for God's precious gift of human life. Cain's anger, depression, and envy lead to the first act of murder. And at the end of the chapter, Lamech boasts that he intends to take unlimited vengeance on anyone who even wounds or injures him. We see here a deepening alienation and estrangement from God and from each other. And it reminds us that contempt for God and for other people may go hand in hand. So the consequences of sin multiply and they deepen. Friends, the central point of this narrative is that Cain's question ironically states a profound truth, that we are our brother's and sister's keeper and protector. In the human family, as those created in God's own image and likeness, God has indeed created us to care for one another beyond our nuclear families as brothers and sisters. This is the positive message from this text, which Jesus teaches when he speaks of loving our neighbors as we do ourselves. It's a message Jesus demonstrates by offering himself on the cross as the once for all sacrifice for the sin of all humankind. And so Jesus calls us today to reverence human life, to become keepers and protectors of the lives of others. This passage asks us to admit and address our own personal sin of desiring vengeance against those we have labeled enemies. And it calls us to cherish the lives of others around us. This passage also addresses societal or corporate sin, which is part of ours in every society. In this case, our culture's acceptance of high levels of violence, especially via the use of firearms and often the use of assault-style weapons. I believe one contributing factor 
to our high levels of violence in the U.S. at present is the current availability of assault-style weapons formerly banned by federal law. One example. The deadliest mass shooting committed by an individual here in the United States occurred back on October 1, 2017 in Las Vegas, where a lone gunman on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel fired on the crowd below, which was attending a music festival. His shooting rampage left 60 dead while wounding 411 others before killing himself. The gunman used an arsenal of 23 guns, 12 of which were upgraded assault-style weapons with bump stocks added, a tool used to fire semi-automatic guns in rapid succession. Within 10 minutes, the shooter was able to fire more than 1,100 rounds of ammunition. Now, not all mass shootings involve the use of assault-style weapons which the former Federal Assault Weapons Ban describes as semi-automatic firearms with a large magazine or clip that were designed for rapid fire and combat use. However, you can see that they allow a single individual to kill dozens of people very quickly. Well, let's begin by considering the argument brought by those who support unlimited gun rights and who refer frequently to the Second Amendment. Let's ask why the Second Amendment to the Constitution was needed in the first place. It was because, as originally written, Section 5 of the U.S. Constitution prohibited a standing army. For this reason, at the end of the American Revolution, the army was disbanded, leaving only the Navy and some on-call militias to protect the nation. Understandably, civilian volunteers in a militia needed the right to own and bear arms. To protect against foreign invasion, the Second Amendment reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That makes sense. But today, friends, the situation has changed dramatically. We no longer need volunteer militias for our national defense. We now have a standing army, a standing navy, a standing air force, and marine corps. Many experts believe the U.S. has the best equipped military on the planet. One example is that last year, in 2020, the U.S. spent a total of $778 billion on our national defense, more than the combined totals of nations worldwide ranked second through tenth in military spending. So our need as civilians to bear arms to provide for the national defense no longer exists. While guns in a society might be used for target practice, for purposes of hunting and self-protection, none of those uses demands the availability of assault-style weapons with clips of more than 100 bullets, weapons designed specifically to kill the most people in the least amount of time. 
In today's text, friends, the Bible tells us that we are called to be keepers and protectors of the lives of other people. How does owning an assault weapon help us to fulfill that role, to nurture and protect rather than destroy human life? And when such weapons fall into the hands of criminals or people with mental emotional issues, as was the case with the Las Vegas shooter, mass murder, and result. I suggest that as citizens trying to obey the word of God, that we should support new legislation to enact another federal ban on the sale of assault weapons here in the United States. Now that alone won't cure our violence problem, but it's a step in the right direction. Kevin Considine wrote an article for the U.S. Catholic magazine last June entitled, Gun Violence Isn't Part of God's Plan, and he wrote in part, One Saturday afternoon, my wife and I were at home in our condo while our kids were at a friend's house. Then it happened. Three quick bursts. I've lived in the city long enough to recognize the sound of gunshots. A young man had been murdered by other young men using automatic weapons. Weapons meant for war. On a quiet, leafy Saturday afternoon, on my street, neighbors and local news reported that the 21-year-old was targeted because of gang affiliation. They called it retaliatory violence. Since the young man was gang-related, does that make his death easier to accept? My children and my neighbor's children could have been out there. Thankfully, they were not. But the countless other children who have become victims of gun violence due to playing in the wrong place at the wrong time, were they part of God's plan? This is not God's plan, not in the least. Friends, may we all live out the call of God in Christ to become keepers and protectors of the lives of all of our sisters and brothers. Amen.